0: Welcome to the sixth episode of the New Models Podcast. We recorded this one just before leaving for Greece for the Athens Biennale, which takes the term anti as its
1: theme. Our guest is Joshua Citarella. Hey, this is Joshua Citarella. I'm an artist based in New York, and we're talking today about my new book project about Politogram.
0: Though Joshua is not part of the Athens Biennale, we thought the questions his work brings up and the subject of his study are very relevant to the framework of anti and the position of the Biennale this year, which we interpret as finding a place of resistance within a media landscape that has been balkanized by outrage. This podcast was recorded in Berlin with Joshua calling in from New York. I'm Lil Internet, and we also have Daniel Keller and New Models co-founder Carly Busta here. Hope you enjoy. Enjoy.
2: Could you maybe just start by describing politogram and like how you started to go down that rabbit hole?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Politogram is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Politogram is the mashup of the two words, political radicals on Instagram. So there's uh, similar communities scattered across pretty much every platform, Reddit, Tumblr, Facebook to a bit, Discord most definitely, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But that was kind of the term that these users collected under. And it includes a pretty wide gamut of ideologies from right and left, and authoritarian and libertarian and there's kind of endless uh, categories that these kind of like nicheified worldviews any any ideology that you can imagine is really flourishing in these spaces ever since i guess being an artist in like 2012 and being active on tumblr to a certain degree i learned pretty early on that a lot of the internet's viral content was produced by Teenagers that were too young to drive. So the specific group that I was following, which is kind of a, like curious little subculture, was the uh, <laughs> the anarcho-capitalists, uh, the ANCAPs for short. And these kids are kind of like uh, m- mostly... Uh, teenage shit posters you know it's like pretty much kind of it was like harmless stuff at the time because i didn't really wield any kind of political power but a really curious thing started to happen that i noticed first in like 2015 around the uh the primaries when that kind of stuff was starting to heat up that these kids who were previously you know as much as anarcho-capitalism can be anti-hierarchical they started to gravitate towards really right-wing authoritarian ideas and eventually in the context of Politogram at least blossomed into what later became known as the alt-right. The book project that we're talking about is kind of focusing on a very specific group that's been maybe like three years of me trying to find some kind of left online movement that can compete with the social media impact of the alt-right.
3: I mean one, one thing I was wondering could we because in your intro you say that the genesis of this project was around 2012 and even though like in some ways it's a similar media environment, obviously stuff looks a lot different now and the way that we use these stacks is a lot different than it was in 2012. And I wonder if you could like reconstitute for us what the landscape looked like when you started picking up on this and maybe this is also like the jogging and some of um, how you existed in that space then. Could you give us a picture of what it looked like to you? And Julian and Dan, I mean, you guys were also active in your own worlds then. Maybe you could, you know, we can sort of put together a map what it looked like then and then within this this conversation talk about what it looks like now
2: i mean i just to start i mean i think in general the stakes seemed much lower in 2012 and there was a lot of you know interest in these kind of niche ideologies and just in general weird subcultures that was like i don't know a form of you know exploring or something like that it didn't feel like it had any real political agency i think there was a really big shift oh yeah 2016 i think that was really decisive i,
0: I also remember 2012 as being kind of like one of the last years that the left could still sort of claim transgression and get away with a bit of a i don't know transgressive language or aesthetics or ideas I was actually just thinking about this the other day, it's really weird, but like Witch House was like the last hurrah of leftist transgression. <laughs> <laughs>
3: like you know,
0: yeah. Say like, oh, wow. yeah. had <laughs> Salem dropping N bombs and like, you know, it was like that was really the last time yeah. like yeah. the left could push it with like <laughs> language or images.
1: <laughs> definitely been like a sharp turn where like uh internet subcultures in two thousand twelve was like something like Pale Goth and now internet subcultures in 2018 is like white nationalist groups right Right. (laughs) a major tide shift i think maybe if we like lay out a little bit of a a framework here that is kind of i think set up in the intro to the book that um the reason that i was kind of like interested in these social formations around uh, memes essentially was if you kind of take this like structural viewpoint of it it sounds quite similar to what I think some of our like, naive techno-utopian hopes were when uh, a lot of our generation first started doing art stuff on the internet. So you could look at uh, or describe it as, I phrased it in the book, I'm trying to recall exactly what I said, but a mass leaderless organization that is uh, based around open source images that contribute to cultural agitations, which have some, some kind of major shift in the uh, public discourse. At a volatile time, right? So, uh, I think artists had a, a, maybe a, a pretty um, deep engagement with those ideas, and eventually learned that a lot of these things are, are kind of bankrupt, and it doesn't it doesn't really turn out like that. But those kind of ideas were really pervasive at the time, and I think persisted basically up until 2016. Where now the general consensus is that. Uh, social media is a a bad place and you can't really do any kind of progressive agenda or organizing in those communities.
0: I mean it could also just be a generational thing whereas a lot of the people on 4chan during the occupy times they still had a bit of that sort of 90s techno utopian collectivism idea maybe well, they left were and they weren't Gen Z. Right. Exactly. Or millennials some of them were even older so were Gen X so I have a question for you because I was actually really heavy on 4chan in, I guess, like 2007, maybe, to 2000, right around like the, uh, I guess, a little bit post-Occupy years. I mean, I I have some of my own ideas, but I wonder if you have any ideas of why kind of 4chan's uh, main ideology switch from well, the they were millennials to, they weren't gen Z, you know right yeah Fascists,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah that's uh that's a really good question right because i guess if you had around that time of occupy uh said the word anonymous you're probably going to immediately conjure this idea of people trying to undermine some kind of uh capitalist structure i, I guess the um that TV show, what is it, Mr. Robot, is kind of like living out that storyline. I think there's two things where it's like there's a major shift in the mainstream media narrative of if social media in general, these online discussion groups are a positive or a negative. So it's kind of um, the prelude is is things like Occupy Wall Street and uh, maybe Obama's first campaign, uh, also the events of the Arab Spring. The, the shift in the kind of, I guess, seven or eight years now um, to uh, you can't hear a story about social media without hearing the word trolls and foreign interference, and it's been interesting to see how those, how those narratives have flipped. I think um, anonymous is maybe uh, something that was more part of the vernacular from a period previous to the, the specific group that I was looking into. Um, if I had to hazard a guess, it would be I don't know, events like maybe the uh, the Red Pill or Elliot Roger-type stuff that um, has, has kind of, like, festered throughout those years.
0: I mean, previously, I think subcultures were sort of the primary mode of youth uh, tribal organization and as subcultures kind of got more niche more distributed and less local I think also I mean do you think like this the sort of these forms of politics that you were uh, exploring I mean in a way for like teenagers do you think these kind of had replaced like musical subcultures as the new sort of tribal signifiers for
1: teenagers uh i think that uh you've you've hit on something there for sure they do share music they're really more so um gathered around specifically in terms of instagram around the the images like instagram is the most uh you know highest ratio of, of image to text but uh, certainly, they're organized around ideology rather than uh, like a specific band or something. There, there's something that, that we should mention. I Though I think that this kind of like nicheification like has has kind of implicit uh, anti collectivist narratives to it. Right. Where people who are part of like something like Witch House that you mentioned before, and then like Pale Goth, maybe have some overlap, but they also define themselves by the outgroup. Right. To have a subculture, yeah. you have to like. Delineate what is and is out- what is inside of it and what is outside of it. So those kind of break apart old left, progressive, class-oriented collectivities.
2: Most of the accounts are anonymous, right? So do you have like a kind of a, a sense of the general den- demographics? Uh, is there like a coherent one that you can kind of identify? Um, and also. I mean, the, at least my impression of it is that there aren't, they aren't really fighting with each other as much as people do on Twitter, for instance. It's much more about yeah, sharing ideas, and it's more fluid in some way. But is that accurate? Yeah,
1: the, the, um, the general age range, I would say, is 12 to 17. And I think that Instagram skews the youngest out of these platforms. It's not the same kind of like Twitter wars where people will kind of like... Certainly, there are very long comment threads, but at the time that that this book is really focusing on it's uh people bantering and kind of like pranking each other or they would raid each other's servers or organize like to mass report someone's image i uh, want to try to draw an analogy to like the early stories of the Edelweiss vice pirates where they were like young kids hanging out or like sports clubs and then they would prank the hitler youth by like letting the air out of their tires or like stealing their their sports equipment and it kind of began as these like mostly kind of like harmless pranks between social groups and then several years later escalated into you know full-on street brawls and became an actual resistance group.
0: Just want to give a shout out to Kale Weissman, who featured New Models in Fast Company. If you want to learn more about New Models, it's a great place to start. We'll be posting more regularly and have a lot of excellent podcasts lined up in the future. So make sure to set us as your homepage and subscribe wherever you listen to our podcast.
3: So you're doing the jogging blog at the time when you started this in 2012 and that tapered off around 2014, I think. Um, And was it, was there something about the way the media environment changed that changed the relevancy of that project for you guys or for you in particular?
1: I think the thing that that really kind of shifted from like Tumblr and these various other platforms and like, a, you know, you never hear the word blogosphere at the time. It's really been the shift to the massive monopoly of uh, like Facebook and Twitter or Instagram into the a giant news feed rather than being spread out between different platforms.
3: Right. And, and it's true. It was around 2014 where it just felt so... So overwhelming. I mean, I know, like, from, I'll just say, like, from, with print media, like, there was a moment where you were like, if you're not remediating your print content via one of the major stacks, it's invisible. Can you talk for a second about the structure of Politogram as uh, sort of continuing what you said in the very beginning, but can you talk about it as a structure that is not really objectifiable? Like one can only understand what it is by passing through it. It's not like you say, oh, over there is like the club where those people hang out and you can point it on a map or define it by a style. It's like it's a really amorphous thing. And maybe you can talk about that versus like a Tumblr era collective or I don't know what other other groups are useful for you as examples?
1: I think there's, there's a kind of a millennial way of using the internet, which is building a personal brand and accumulating followers and staking out a position. And then there's kind of a Gen Z way of using the internet, which is characteristic of the kind of activity that these users do. But th- they will very often delete their account, restart it under a different name, they're cautious of gaining too many followers. They don't really use hashtags or enable easy ways to find them in the in the context of Instagram specifically, to the best of my knowledge, there's not an easy way to scrape quantitative data from that platform. So everything is really kind of clunky and you'll have to click through one account to to look through the comments to see, oh, who's the person who originally made this. They they kind of structured their communities as these kind of like little kind of anarchistic pop-ups that you can follow it for a few weeks and it's around these users and then a third of the accounts are missing and it's a different group of users, uh-huh. but it's the same people who are actually running it. They're really, really suspicious of accounts that have too many followers or get any press in the, the mainstream media or try to monetize their following, which is not uncommon. A lot of these mainstream conservative accounts have like a merch store in their bio or do some kind of sponsored post. So to kind of show that you're a real ideologue it's, it's actually it's cooler to have less than a thousand followers and once you get too much or you, you decide to like change your ideology you just delete and start over which seems totally antithetical to the way that our generation started doing social media which was, okay, you're an entrepreneur right. and you need to get a following so that you can sell your artwork or your your t-shirt or, or something like that.
2: Yeah, it seems like Gen Zs are using social media sort of with this sort of like Gen X authenticity poser uh, dichotomy again, which is like very different than, yeah, the millennial internet.
3: And so the low numbers, just like to spell it out, is like, it is this, it is some play for authenticity. Like I have 800 followers and I'm diehard. Like my small following proves that, like, I'm not trying to appeal to the masses. Is that where that's coming from? Do you think or
1: Yeah, it's it's funny too because there's two things, two practices that are kind of at odds with each other. Where up until after the election, these spaces were really kind of just wildly unregulated. Like no one was watching them, and the content they would post was, you know, there was some pretty pretty hard to watch uh, videos and really kind of horrific uh, images and that were going on, but they were doing it in public, so it was a public account. So they're ostensibly recruiting people to their ideology. Uh, whereas, if you wanted to limit it, you would likely be a private account. It's it's kind of curious behavior, but I think I mean it was kind of it was kind of short lived. Like the group that's described in the book, I think is kind of really formed by the kind of external events in the world and in the media at that time.
3: Do you want to just, for our listeners, just um, sketch what that group is, just as an example?
1: I think looking for some kind of left counterpart to the social media impact of the alt-right, I looked through a tremendous amount of uh, different communities, but what I was really struck by was that towards the end of 2016, there was a huge rise in uh, what you would describe as the post-left. So to give a quick definition of that, uh, where, where Marx would, and I'm paraphrasing uh, John Zerzan, who is one of their their like major uh, thinkers for this kind of ideology, but uh, where, where the left would say that alienation arises from industrial society and the commodity form, the post-left would argue that alienation occurs even earlier with the beginning of uh, sedentary agricultural societies and through labor specialization. So... Um, Previously, the kind of history that they uh, subscribe to, which has certain um, scholarly underpinnings, is supported by evidence to a certain degree, but is also largely uh, cherry picked. That people would be able to be self-sufficient and gather their own food, hunt their own food, um, be able to build their own shelter. So that that this alienation kind of starts and and corresponds with the first uh, hierarchies of uh, society uh, under walled cities and sedentary agriculture that implicitly begins social hierarchies. And I, I think there's there's an interesting thing that's that's going on at the time where the general consensus is that it's it feels nearly impossible to envision some kind of progressive image of the future that is in any way realistic. And there's not really a point in history that you want to return to. Mm-hmm. So their solution is to just wipe all of it clean.
2: Do you think like the new axis rather than authoritarian, libertarian or left and right is really just acceleration or deceleration? Because that's what it seems like more and more.
1: For, for them, most definitely,
2: yeah. yeah. And I feel like, I mean, I'm not particularly into like horseshoe theory stuff, but it, it seems like, uh, at least the people I follow on Twitter, there's a very big, surprising amount of overlap in those two viewpoints. And it's more just that there's like, a few, future-oriented politics as opposed to one of, you know, actual politicking or anything like that. And it is really based on some sort of speculation more than anything else.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't believe that uh, horseshoe theory is a real thing i think that's like uh i think that's centrist propaganda but um
2: yeah sure of course yeah yeah,
1: there's uh (laughs) maybe it's more like a venn diagram
2: than a horseshoe is what i mean um because there just seems to be people who are interested in i guess it's sort of maybe that is unconditional accelerationism is just sort of uh accepting either outcome
1: yeah yeah it's it's funny i think I kind of describe it in the book as like a Stockholm syndrome where post left is kind of, they had their roots in the left. Right. So, and then they've, they've kind of come to this critique where uh, the the classic example is a union organizer who's worked uh, as part of the union for like 30 years and is about to get his pension and he's fired 15 minutes before the end of the day. But what, what starts to take shape is um, the, the, political spectrum in these worlds is really tilted towards a kind of nihilism mm-hmm. you know so they they to a certain degree realize that they can't actually live out the world that they would want and so you can become pretty pessimistic uh, very
2: quickly so is like the black pill is the trajectory of all this thought you think basically
1: yeah they, they don't really use that term so much because I, I think that's really you know more so associated with an evolution of the red pill and comes from the right right but um, certain is something very very similar i think it's maybe there's a good quote that encapsulates it it's from like the from the situationist i think where it's like our options are either revolution or suicide
3: right so that's kind of their, their worldview right better mine off
0: <laughs> i mean i was sorry to ask kind of a basic question but have you like seen actually track down any photos or any sense of the reality of what type of kids these are like could they survive like one week in real <laughs> <laughs> and prim life, <laughs> or <laughs> t- or is this all in some degree a bit of, uh, you know,
1: MMORPG? Yeah, well, th- I mean, they, they thoroughly hate capitalism. They thoroughly hate hierarchies. So they kind of like yearn for this like pre-hierarchical society. But they're certainly in these channels and some of the accounts are showing like, oh, this is my tent from my camping trip this week. And they, they try to live those things out. But I think it's, it's more that there's like a lack of a like ideal period of time that they want to return to. But
3: that's also kind of like any teenager I mean like every teenager like in the I'm old but in the 90s it was like Outward bound in Knolls was like your escapism so it wasn't exactly Ampram but there was your own iteration of it so every teenager has the exit fantasy of living off well, the grid outside of hierarchy. I mean not to
0: mention when you live with your parents and you have no money you yeah. definitely hate capitalism and
3: hierarchies <laughs> Ted seems possible mom,
0: <laughs> hey mom <laughs> yeah. there's parents there's a shitty allowance it's like that's that's capitalism and hierarchy.
2: Uh, I have a question. do you, I mean, is is there any kind of like aesthetic or mimetic difference in the strategy that you see with the post left kind of memes versus the alt right memes? I mean, you say that they're the first ones you could see that really counters it, but how do they do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the meme formats are really you can plug in just about any variable, right? right and you right. have these uh, certain strategies of like they call it like. XOR gate, like exclusive or, which comes from from coding somewhere of like an A option and a B option, which is the exit twelve car that's like making a swift turn towards one direction, or the Drake who is approving one option or and disapproving the other.
2: Right. Okay, (laughs) right, of course. Yeah.
1: Certainly there's there's different kind of styles that that some of them employ, but if anything circulates in one group long enough, then the other guys pick it up. You know, like, the, the this week, I guess, to be topical, the NPC memes are right. uh, really trending at the moment, and I'm seeing it from, you know, all different positions, where it's just, like... Basically, everyone who doesn't agree with my specific ideology is a non-player character. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a shame because it was a really good disc before that. It got this. It's I mean, it really is the Pepe effect that it used to be a kind of an open, an open platform, and then it just you know the alt right ruined it. I guess that's also
3: fascinating, though. No, everyone who doesn't agree with my ideology is an NPC. I mean, that is actually an interesting way of describing what sure. the landscape looks like right now. Sure, I mean, and it's, and of of one it's one of the problems. The mirror
2: to the Russian yeah. bot, of course, right, it's right. the same. Yeah. Uh,
3: I I wonder
0: though, because I mean, I guess the alt right also has its own sort of lexicon and, and code words, etc. But it, it seems like this is though is still like really intellectual, like. A, a lot of sort of academic jargon and, and things that are a bit complicated and require uh, quite a bit of, of study is there like a dumb person version of this for the <laughs> left though still because the thing about the whole right is you don't you, like you can be a total idiot and uh, get right into it
2: I, I really love that one meme that's just like explain to lose to me right now or I'll fucking kill you <laughs> I do feel like that sums up the issues yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean anytime anytime there's a 14-year-old reading Deleuze, uh, that seems like pretty Uh, significant that's somehow a cultural anomaly that's worth investigating there i mean there's varying degrees of like a firm to loose grasp on the uh uh, the more scholarly concepts that are um, at work in these communities but they i mean they literally upload pictures of their bookshelf like they're reading it they're sharing the
2: pdfs that's kind of taking
1: quotes (laughs) uh some stuff you you feel like oh they're maybe they don't have a, a full understanding of this but certainly the The conversations that I've seen, there's quite a serious degree of study in some of these people. And I think that's kind of the path of radicalization under this current media paradigm, which is maybe you have some kind of political leanings and you see a funny meme and this resonates with you in some way. And then you just kind of progressively get indoctrinated by it and you can follow the rabbit hole until you become a really, you know, thoroughly convinced ideologue.
3: But I mean, that makes sense also at a time when, you know, like college is like less and less tenable um, and wanting to have some kind of meaning structure. I mean, I remember guys who wouldn't date girls because they had certain books or didn't have certain books on their <laughs> bookshelf. You know, 17, 18, 19 year olds, that is a form of of, of of agency that they can have. They may not have money but they can have like, claimed ideology or knowledge. knowledge That's base. one of
2: my least favorite installation art tropes is yeah. like the bookshelf with specific <laughs> Big books on it oh god I, I just wondered is there what are your interactions with these kids like have you actually talked to them that much do they think you're like a creepy old guy are they like into you being interested in them
1: yeah well maybe just to like fill in a few pieces of this story so essentially up until basically last week the rules for the research were to just follow not like not comment just kind of study these spaces and look for trends right and then I had been kind of thinking that, you know, for probably about a year now that I wanted to do some kind of book that summarized the research because I had kind of learned in my studio visits that, like, no one had really any idea what I was talking about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to, to realize, but I mean, like, my feed is not everyone else's feed, you know? And I just kind of took for granted, like, oh, everyone else is seeing teenagers produce this content on the internet, and that's certainly not the case. So I put the research down in this book that's... I think it's, like, it's 108 pages, and probably two-thirds of the book is a kind of ethnography of sorts of this specific kind of egoist communism, uh, left-com, UAC-type community. And one of those books was at a bookstore in the East Village, and someone from Politogram went and bought the book, scanned it, and put it on Discord. <laughs> so since then, <laughs> uh, I hadn't really checked Discord in, in a while, and then I, I was just kind of scrolling, I was about to go to bed, and I see a notification that is a photograph of the book and I realize I have a bunch of messages, and also a lot of my servers are now missing. Um, so since then, I mean, I had kind of been, I had been printing it as kind of a, a way to, like, keep it in the art world and allow this to be a bit of, like, a handbook for how to understand these spaces. And it's specifically geared towards artists, you know, it's written to, like, give an introduction to these spaces that, it, you know, it's assuming that people are not familiar with them. But I think, you know, because I've kind of put them under the microscope, the story now feels incomplete. And the feedback that they have given, I've had uh, so many uh, really extraordinary conversations with some very inspiring young people over the last week or so, uh, which is to a certain degree, like restored my faith in um, the, in the young left. Yeah, uh, I was going to
2: ask you that if this in gener- if this project in general, made you feel more hopeful. But um, yeah, apparently it did. So that's good news. <laughs>
1: well, it, it has now. It has now. But uh, at the the time. I had started to notice that these communities were, were dissipating to a degree. Like, you, if you have to search through your feed to find something, then you're probably hunting for a story that isn't there. Mm-hmm. So noticing that the activity had kind of declined and that the research was coming to a close and the piece I was working on it kind of, you know, was towards the end. It's like, okay, this is a good time to kind of close the research. So certainly the, the people that I've talked to who are featured in the book, their, their worldview has become a bit more optimistic, mm-hmm. right? Which is, I mean, it's it's relative because it's extremely pessimistic in the book. So it's just you know a, a few a few degrees tilted towards like progressivism that that maybe there's a solution to these problems.
2: Um, are these people like actualizing their politics in any way beyond discussion online? Or is there, or, I mean, is there something like the equivalent of the Proud Boys or something that's emerging with this? I think that the kind of like best case solution is that they just take their own advice and log off
0: sometimes.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's also been, I think, they're kind of like. Shifting more towards, you know, general kind of like socialist policies that there is a way to have industrialized society and, you know, have have a progressive agenda. Certainly, my observation from 2015 onwards, the kids on the right were were very much involved with the kind of boots on the ground stuff. So I was following one guy who was knocking on doors for uh, Rand Paul, and then when Rand Paul got knocked out of the primaries, he then kind of overnight became a Trump supporter Pepe, Pepe guy. You know, he was like, he was an ANCAP but he supported Rand Paul, and then he became a kind of authoritarian fascist. He and just likes
2: winning, that's all.
1: <laughs> I mean, this guy, this guy is also part of the National Guard, and like, he's, a, he's a few years older. Um, he has quite an extensive gun collection. Uh, it, it does seem like there's, if you're part of this, this political radical space, uh, it's easier to get involved, or they're more likely to get involved if they're on the right, at least from, from my observation.
3: A question, sort of, from the other side: Have you seen any recuperation of this activity by institutions or people that have money or have a power or a platform?
1: I mean, it's funny. I think, I think yesterday it was uh, that Infowars announced a ten thousand dollar prize for the best NPC meme. Like, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, who is who is that other guy? Who's the the like the Oculus Rift guy? Like, he bought billboard space and uh, Facebook ads for some group on R the donald it really oh, seems right. like you know people who have money are not putting it into these these meme groups yeah i don't know i mean i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of hopeful because i i still want to believe in that strategy that we can use these spaces to organize but i think that there's there's an inherent kind of like right bias to these spaces why
2: you do know? you think that is like i mean it's sort of because it's so by nature, individuated. I right. really do think that has something to but do with it. does that mean
3: rightist? I mean, is well, that... What's not the leftist,
2: that's for sure. Right, left, yeah. right,
3: right. And I think that there is...
2: Yeah, center-right at best. I think that um, with kind of the leftism today, there's, because of intersectionality, there is there's not really any room for kind of variation on right. that idea. Whereas, I think it's like hard for people on the left to understand that but you can be a right-wing person and be like really into guns but hate racism yeah or you know have you can kind of pick and choose your causes in a way and I think um so yeah it's just like more conducive this it, sort of like hashtag hashtagization of, your, of yeah. your politics it's just more fitting to that
0: yeah I mean in a, in a weird way is it is it also that the right is actually kind of mastered that sort of I don't know Chantal Mouffe like agonism position instead of antagonism within themselves like I don't know like right spaces actually enjoy the debate and disagreement while still being allies of sorts whereas whereas the left it really is like this like kind of disregard over who what degree of an enemy you are Joan Didion the other day
3: like can you like Joan Didion considering the fact that she was not nice to other women or Whatever it was, yeah. like um, yeah. I don't know, that was filling up my Twitter feed last week. I mean, right. is, is
0: that like aga—that agon- sort of, um, yeah, the, the agonism as opposed to antagonism, like actually the way the more right spaces operate, as opposed to like online left spaces.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, certainly a lot of these communities form in, in opposition to something else, right? They have kind of reactionary tendencies in that they're they're shaped by external events. So one of one of the interesting things that I encountered for this group was I found them deploying a lot of the same arguments of kind of like anti-essentialist arguments uh, about race and gender that you'd be familiar with from like a um, idpol Tumblr group, but they they like to leverage these critiques through the lens of a philosopher called Max Stirner, who is um, <laughs> giving like without giving too much of a, an explanation. Uh, it, Talks about these things like uh, about a hundred years before postmodernism, and describes them as uh, quote spooks or uh, phantoms. So you would see that they were they kind of a- agreed with those critiques, but they wanted to distance themselves from that kind of intersectional uh, tumbler. And certainly, I mean, I think the quantitative data from um, Facebook driving clicks to BuzzFeed over outrage articles during the primaries really supports how. How much those things shaped public discourse?
0: I mean, Max Sterner Max Turner is kind of just the perfect guy for. I mean, Spooks is such a good meme. Like, <laughs> it's just like perfect. It's like a funny word. Like, it's somewhat fo- like. And then his own that little portrait, that little sketch of him from angles is just uh, such a it's perfect so meme. I so <laughs> mean, <anime, yeah. laughs> you know, because, like since like cigarette companies can't really market to young people with cartoons anymore i feel like like camel or marlboro should just have like max sterner be like their their new mascot you know like the new Marlboro man max sterner i think it would work really well
2: are there other like people that are sort of like patron saints like i'm thinking of like ted kaczynski or nick land are, are there sort of like followings for those specific men
1: yeah i'm thinking of other like major figures it's kind of i mean sterner is is a huge one uh nick land uh ted kaczynski of course the other people kind of like come in and out so john Zerzan, to a certain degree you'll see uh Bordiga in there sometimes but not really i, I mean there's a weird there's a weird kind of contingency that has has kind of emerged towards the end of it that isn't mentioned in the book where they're their Pol Pot supporters. What? I'm not,
0: nice.
3: I'm not, uh,
1: yeah. I'm not sure how much uh, of the historical record they're familiar with.
2: I mean, pro Gulag seems to be kind of trending. I mean, there was that whole Goldsmith's flap a couple months ago with the pro Gulag. Uh... For for trans rights, basically things. So I think that's seeming like moving into the mainstream a little bit.
3: Well, I have a question. I mean, now that we are all so siloed in our groups that sort of have consensus, um, a year ago I was still working at Texas Kunst and there was total hysteria over um, any any suggestion that Nick Land had once, even back in the '90s, done something that could still be useful today. Or, I mean, my God, as soon as he started talking about the internet. You were already locked into a structure that was bad and wrong. Now that I'm not working there, I feel like, oh, everybody's chilled out. It's actually not so bad. But is that something that I am feeling in isolation or in your research? Like, do you feel as though there is a section of, especially the art sector, that is a little bit more relaxed about debating, like, what is useful for us? What is, like, actually dangerous? What, I don't know. How, what, what's, what's the view from your perspective?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I think, um, I think there's still, these are very difficult and unpopular t- topics to talk about. And I remember I, I gave a talk at, um, what was it, it was like Armory the year before, I guess it was 2017 Armory, and I was really kind of terrified to bring these things up. So the fact that we're able to talk about them a, a bit more in the open has maybe shown that it, uh, you know, the, the, the tensions are relaxed maybe a bit. I mean, I was I was in Miguel Brew in the Lower East Side earlier this week, and I remember seeing uh, Fanged Numina and uh, the CCRU
3: yeah, in the bookstore. They published it. I mean, that's one of their like yeah. like books that they published.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm. I don't specifically in relation to his work. I think I think that he he kind of frames the whole. He, he frames the argument in such a way that like you can't really pull anything out of it than his conclusions Mm. um i i really find it's like i don't get too much use from it it feels more like poetry like it's like art writing rather than theory writing right
2: do you see any like are there any like kind of surprising ideas that you think maybe will get more mainstream traction i mean i just think about like the writings of Mencius Moldbug and how within i mean it seems like the most nerdy far out things when I was first reading it a few years ago and the fact that like Bannon got into it and there was some sort of direct line into mainstream politics. I just wonder what's the next What's the next mold bug that you've identified?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, it's interesting because I feel like a few years ago, if, if you, know, you had brought those guys up, uh, people would tell you you're crazy. And then now the, the public debate has shifted so that some of the things they were talking about now seemed weirdly as if they were relevant and they had some kind of prophetic foresight about these things. I think I mean in the in the course of this research, the stuff that has been most intellectually stimulating would be uh, the work of James C. Scott, who is a um, he's a professor in the political science uh, political science department at Yale, and he writes about kind of early agrarian uh, like non state societies, hmm. and kind of takes a really large view of history that. Uh, essentially, like supports the thesis that the dawn of walled city states were built to keep people in rather than keep enemies out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that at the beginning of uh, agriculture, that this was essentially a form of taxation where they would force people to grow wheat or grow rice because it could be dehydrated, it all ripened at the same time so the tax man could come around and collect your grain. Mm-hmm. And that at certain points throughout history, which he describes as kind of like fracture societies, people would escape from these walled city states and go and live in the hills and they would grow uh, root vegetables which the tax man would have to dig up and carry all these heavy things back down you know 500 feet of a mountain that's great (laughs)
2: It's a good analogy
0: are there any women doing involved in this
1: uh yeah, I mean, I, certainly the um, it's the majority of it is is white men, right? Between twelve and seventeen, and it seems that there's kind of a premium on having any other other kind of identity, and people usually put it in their their username. I remember watching the the political evolution of uh, this one young woman who was maybe we'll we'll call her Betty for this, but she uh, started with the account name Libertarian Betty, and then. Uh, somewhere in like twenty sixteen she changed it to alt right Betty. <laughs> oh. Deleted her account, came back, and then deleted it again, and she came back under another username and she was a, a full blown monarchist. Like not like a, <laughs> like, like a mold bug, like NRX monarchist, just like an old school like feudalist wow. monarchist. Wow. Yeah, and I mean she's probably sixteen, seventeen <laughs> at
2: the time. <laughs> it's phases, it's like your goth phase is your monarchist phase. It's <laughs> Um do you have are there any like prescriptions that you can that you get from this that you think that actually there are some specific lessons that the left should learn and practices they can adopt?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean I think I think the one of the bigger takeaways has been um seeing the value of pushback. Right? So um you could you could imagine when these users are more or less out in public that they're they're kind of Debating with people who have different worldviews, and then once they're like no platformed or somehow pushed out of out, out of public, and they go into these like more or less private chat servers, that um, they really marinate and um, become ever more entrenched in their in their worldview. So the things that I've seen that are effective are, I think, mostly happening right now on on YouTube mm-hmm. with accounts like uh, Sean and Contrapoints of um, the importance, I guess, of upvoting things that are well-researched and have a counter-narrative. Hmm. Uh, so you'll see something like uh, like, like, a Stefan Molyneux video where he cites all of these, you know, air quotes, factual information, and then the top recommended video is by someone like Sean, who actually goes through all of his sources and litigiously picks out, well, this is actually the counterpoint to it. And, Ah, uh, you know, he has um, miscited this information and looked over this piece and just kind of step by step debunks their narrative so no one can really walk away from it, believing that they got good information from the first video.
0: So, on listening back to this point of pushback, I realize how important it is, and we move on in the conversation, but I wanted to address something i would just been thinking about recently, which is if we could sort of return to a shared idea of common sense. Oftentimes, a reaction to one of these pseudo-intellectual right-wing framework videos is to describe decry it as racist, or decry it as fascist, or, disc- or ad hominem attacks from the left, which ultimately are meaningless to anyone who sort of has an attraction to these kinds of ideas. Whereas these pushback videos, where they're actually debunking point by point in a framework of what ultimately could be considered common sense, that actually is the most effective way to, to refute and and. Re- rebut and uh, invalidate these ideas and the narratives they present, most importantly, and therefore help stop them from gaining traction and power. I I think it's a much more effective strategy. One really broad question. I mean... In terms of, like, real world, like, I don't know, voting in the election politics, is there any cohesion with these people? Do they actually feel like they're on the same team in any regard? Like, do they vote Democratic, for instance, or... They can't
1: what, vote
2: what, what yet. What is... Oh, that's
1: true! vote mostly. Oh, that's an easy cop-out.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think the... I mean, if, if you want to talk about voting, like, Democrat or Republican, um... Like, these guys, the group in the book would describe Marxist-Leninists as the left wing of capital. So there's not, There's no movement that, uh, you know, they could really join. Jill Stein. You know? and it certainly as our, like, kind of public debate in the States, especially narrowed around what is, like, realistically possible, uh... There's, I mean, there's something very valuable about these spaces that just has, the the Overton window is endless. You know, anything can really work its way into that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so far
0: in your book, you say that you, you haven't seen any sort of real world violence actually take place from them. I mean, is there, does it like, has there been some direct action though? Or do you think there's actually a potential for this to bleed over into the real world and I mean personally I've always kind of been focusing on this idea that the that just spending growing up in an online space makes you really lose your sense of of permanence because you're in such a, a, a fluid amorphous space all the time I mean do you see this as something that could emerge like we may have a new weather underground of sixteen year olds in the near future <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, it's very, it's very possible. There's the group that they kind of like is called uh, ITS, which is based primarily out of Mexico, which is a kind of um, anti-civ resistance group that is extraordinarily violent. Not like the kind of like ELF uh, property destruction that we're familiar with in the States. From what I've seen... Um, this is kind of all in the realm of just like intellectual curiosity and irony, and, and no one has really like committed any property destruction. I, I also, in my research, and I could be wrong about this, but I haven't found some example of a revolution that was organized around the kind of sterner union of egoists. It's, <laughs> it seems like it's hard to, to do a revolution without any sense of collectivity. Um,
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: But I mean, they really, it's funny because it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily seem like they go out to protest, but any kind of, you know, IRL movement also has, like, a URL movement associated with it, right? These things, like, work in tandem with each other, and it's, I guess, part of our job to sort out, like, which is leading which at, at a certain point. Um, but I think if you were to go back to, like, 2013 or 14 and like like if you said the word alt-right no one would have any idea what you were talking about and then the the Google Analytics just like absolutely like J-curve spike mm. uh, in the during the primaries and now There's, you know, quite a good bit of research that shows like, oh, well, these online spaces have really been festering with these ideas for years at this point. It's not something that just immediately popped out of nowhere. So I could imagine that if there was a major political tide shift at some point that people could go back and unearth this history that's shown in in the book or similar communities like it. um, And it would show how like this kind of cultural movement had already been prefigured through these communities.
3: I mean, one thing I see in this, though, is a really interesting form of resistance is one of incoherency. And at a time when the data scrubbers are able to parse even small enclaves of voters or um, of an age cohort, an age demographic, you have a group of people. I don't know actually what the scale of Politogram is. Like, I don't know what them is. its it 100,000? Is it, is it 10? Is it a million Ten million, I don't know, but you do have a kind of collective incoherency, the like an anonymity, which is actually an interesting black hole in the 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 data the data eye, Um, and I mean I actually see that as a really promising smart. And it's not like they're like trying to be incoherent so that they resist the the like the, the the data bots, but that's what they're doing. It's like almost um,
2: the data bots instead of that. Da-
3: data they're data bots. Yeah, exactly. they are. I mean, and I mean that's actually when you think of Gen Z. I mean, I remember reading this article about like just the regular collective flop account, and I was like impressed that oh yeah, like teenagers are squatting accounts on major stacks and I think I brought up this article a few times but yes, I, it's I, relevant, yeah, yeah. But it's relevant but, um, but I, I thought okay that's great you know we had this in, in the 2000s like when one thinks of dis and one thinks of the aesthetics of like millennial aesthetics and you know it was a kind of embrace of the mainstream and a kind of like like almost accelerationist embrace the mainstream but now you have people finding underground spaces within the mainstream structures so a way of being invisible within the mainstream and I think it's I think for for that reason that is a, that is a kind of collective attitude that one might be able to associate with this group.
1: I uh, definitely agree. And you see them change their account names, delete the account and restart it. They they refuse to use hashtags, they refuse to collect under a single name for their ideology. They use terms like uh leftcom and uac and egocom and uh you know, uh, cyber nihilism uh, <laughs> but there's not there's not like one movement yes. that you could like just check the analytics on that term right. and pinpoint them right
0: I mean there's is some I mean are, are, are a lot of these kids like gamers because there's just something about all of it that makes me The the fact that they use these sort of titles as almost badges, or almost building a character in an RPG with like particular traits or like spells or skill sets, and the fact that they like change characters a lot. I mean, I know they'd be they they definitely wouldn't play Civilization, but Katamari seems like it might fit well with their with destroying, rolling up entire cities into giant balls, but. I just don't know if that like yeah is is there I mean are they also coming out of kind of a gaming culture because a lot of it does seem gamified in terms of the traits and the badges unlocked and uh the dnd sort of parsing of uh chaotic neutral all of that you know
1: in, in the writing collective which is like a kind of an anarcho-primitivist uh site right they have a video game review of i think it's far cry 2 which is like some some world after the collapse yeah i, I think uh the the kind of identity play and um Outfitting your character with all of your kind of like customized uh, little badges is absolutely correct, especially in the case of uh, Discord. And you'll see it on Instagram with, um, have they, they generally have... You'll see the account name, and then it's the things that they support, and the another column for things they don't support, or their like, um, you know, primary interest with an emoji, and then the, the topic that that account is specifically interested in. They play civilization to a degree. Um, it seems like Fortnite is the big thing now, and there was also for a long while. The like libertarian ANCAPs were really obsessed with um, emulators of the Oregon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> you, have to, you have to like, there's no, there's no like, the morality is whatever you choose. Like you choose the rations and you try to like ish- distribute the resources in in such a way that you reach your destination. And it's also kind of got it like a manifest destiny, like pioneering, like homesteading theme to it. So. Uh, Yeah, they're quite into that one. But all of these, all of their activities in the game are kind of like playing out their politogram uh, character, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, I'm starting this Civ game now, and I'm going to play as if I'm like a transhumanist. Or Mm -hmm. I'm starting this Civ game, and I'm going to be like a classical liberal. And then they try and play out these these, uh, worlds.
3: (laughs) I want to see a vegan Oregon Trail.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You okay. could ju- you could just gather the the plants and not not hunt animals. Yeah, <laughs> right. the
3: uh, yeah, yeah yeah yeah, but you get the bison and you're but like the, good yeah help. exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I thought actually, because we haven't really talked about uh, your artwork at all, but I was just wondering like how this this image collage, how that fits in with your research exactly and um, what's the deal with that?
1: Yeah, so I guess um, a year ago when I first started to conceive of this book, I wanted to do a little bit of, kind of almost like a, a working diary of making the work, uh, showing the research side by side with the work. So the specific pieces that are shown in it are you know large scale tableaus that are life size, kind of fully fleshed out world that show an individual in their live space or their workspace and the logistics of the society and then the like the quite literal social con- uh, contract that is employed in some of these worldviews so the earlier work was kind of a high-res visualization of ancapistan and then another <laughs> one later was uh, transhumania <laughs> uh, so so the current piece that was kind of Trying to visualize their, I guess, like a cyber nihilist wor- uh, world would be maybe the best example of it. Or maybe uh, some some kind of exit ideology. But it's a a guy living in his Tesla with the bioweapon defense mode
3: engaged. <laughs> uh,
1: which is like, it sounds like a joke, like most of these things do. But it's quite literally Uh, that's been tested, I think, in 2015 by Tesla that you can survive a military-grade bioweapon detonating by staying inside of your car. It's (laughs) it's a filter made by some military subcontractor. Uh, You know, I mean, Tesla and the the Elon Musk character in general is really kind of like um, accelerationist edgelord uh, uh, fuel, if there ever was one.
2: I also like how janky it is because, like, yeah, you might have the bio defense mode, but also, like, they can't even get the doors, the tolerance on the doors right. I saw this one Tesla that came off the assembly line with, like, the wrong colored bumper on. Like, that does not happen <laughs> to Toyotas ever. Like, the guy bought it and then he noticed that the, it was, like, a matte black bumper on his shiny black thing and then got it, have, <laughs> didn't return it. So I don't know. I feel like, yeah, the reality is always shittier than the uh, yeah. <laughs> accelerationist promise. I, uh,
1: I, I was outside my building and someone parked a Tesla and they walked past it like a little bit too close and the remote key triggered the front door opening <laughs> <laughs> and they went their building and it was immediately like shut, locked behind them. So there's this like real kind of like moral quandary of, you know, this guy who's like probably a shitty dude because he owns a Tesla, his front door is wide open. It's like, do I shut it? Do I leave it open? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. steal everything?
2: <laughs> but, yeah. What did you do?
1: I I, I shot it eventually. Oh, yeah, um, but I really did consider like you know coward. he's probably got five of these. You know, let, <laughs> let some people get, get his uh, his iPod or, or whatever.
3: I'm just curious uh, the the collages that you're doing um, are they do they have a life in another format? Like, do you install them so that they are like actually like installed room size? You do right?
1: Yeah, yeah. The new one is. Um, I think, it's, I think it's like 16 or 18 feet. So it's really like you could enter the space. I think wow. if, if part of our like trouble now is uh, envisioning some kind, of, some kind of image of the future other than just this like never ending uh, present, then I, that's I think built into the work a little bit to try and like understand what another world would be like for, for better or worse.
3: And so by doing these, like, are you still thinking of like the gallery wipe cube as like the the sort of default installation zone or um, like, I mean, I don't know how far we want to get into this, but I am always curious, like, what is the state of how art is being presented in a time when a lot of our consumption and transmission is happening in a digital space, right? So especially for an artist like yourself, like, what's your relationship to the trad gallery space right now?
1: The trad galleries. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I think a lot of people at the moment are kind of like renegotiating their relationship to the art world. Um, you know and certainly a a lot of this is like uh subtended by like there not being a market for it when there there was a few years ago and also you know i'm speaking from my own experience but i think this maps onto a lot of people just seeing how people have reacted to our moment of political crisis and the establishment figures in the art world just daily expressing the worst most uninformed opinions no kidding jerry made me wonder like i can't even go there
3: oh my god no, right. And Burnbaum has just left and now works for like a VR, private VR museum. Right. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, exactly. It's like the, instit- it's weird. It's almost like the, the, ins- the art institutions, it's not even like they put up a form of resistance. They just kind of imploded or they kind of like jump ship. I mean, there's not even something to resist there. There's just a vacuum, basically. And so, yeah, but so these, the work you're making is still, that's still what you have in mind. Like the exhibition venue, museum venue, or does it have a more public life? Or how do you like? Or how would, when you when you sell it, what's the object form? Or are you thinking about that? Or is that conversation it's to you? It's a big print, right? But or is it or is yeah. it like a file that you print so many times because it's a yeah. wall application? I mean, maybe, you know.
1: It's kind of hard to work your way out of the art world if you are dependent on it for a portion of your income. Right. But the next one would be ostensibly the kind of production time and labor would be paid for by a patron and we would release it for free online. Oh, cool. That's kind of a strategy that I like for it. But, you know, you still kind of want a place for contemplation. So despite all of those problems of the, the Trad Gallery,
3: um, <laughs> you, know, you
1: want you, you want to allow people access to it in some way that's more than just their computer monitor, maybe.
3: I think that's a very good and simple um, piece of evidence for why the gallery ultimately is not going to go away completely.
0: Sure. <laughs> I guess one of your, uh, I think it was Swim, was kind of based around a flooded New York. Um, I mean, which is like a very, like very likely thing thing that will exist sometime in the future um but are there like i mean have you found like these sort of like specific flooded new york sort of like prepper like dystopian logistics communities on planning how what they're going to do in flooded
1: new york i don't know if i've seen it um in reference to new york specifically i mean for the piece it was I guess assuming that like everything would be kind of privatized and the EPA would be disbanded, we'd get runaway climate change. Um, But it was also kind of a little bit of a gag of the kind of ANCAP question of who's going to build the roads. So once you can just get around by canoe you don't need the roads anymore it seems like a really fitting
2: solution <laughs> sea logic I mean, right, right. Okay. yeah float yeah. with climate change that's the idea fish in your stairwell
3: <laughs> there is a group exactly. called Woodbine in New York that is specifically addressing this question about um, resilience in a time of a flooded New York
0: there you go there you go the but they're the not question. I don't
3: think they're so digitally oriented okay. so
0: I wonder if you'll be able to eat more than one portion of eel per month in the East River if you're over 14 <laughs> and not pregnant
2: <laughs> have you ever seen the signs because <laughs> of the mercury or what no, well they just have Whatever. these signs yeah. like
0: on the like in the I don't know I know in Williamsburg in that park like north 6 or something there's like a pier and it's like warning like do not eat more than one portion of eel per month from the east <laughs> river and it, e- eating eel is not recommended for those under 15 or women who are pregnant or able to get pregnant. Able <laughs> to get oh, pregnant. Wow. Wow. So there's like regular... For so you men. Can eat, eels are for men. Yeah, you can eat fish, especially eels, I think, from the East River, but they, they have like an official quota for how many... Just the
3: thought of an eel in the East River is like enough to make me never want to eat eel again. Oh, that, that, I'm oh. surprised like
0: a sushi restaurant hasn't started that as a thing. Though, like East River River Sushi River to Table.
3: (laughs) Oh, super fun to table. Oh, super fun to table. Super fun to table (laughs) (laughs) table is very good. Michelin Star, that's all I had. (laughs) (laughs) All right, okay,
2: cool. Do you want to actually just say the name of your book and where we can buy it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the kind of like working or unofficial title for it. You know, they didn't really collect under a title, so I, I wasn't sure what to name it. Um, we've been going by Politogram in the post-left. And for the time being, I don't think that I'm going to sell any more books. I'm going to release a free PDF version of it in a few months from now. Okay. Uh, that includes my conversations with them, some of their feedback on the book. Um, you know, and I think if, you know, if they've already got it in their hands, there's no reason to quarantine it to the art world.
3: Yeah, totally. Fair enough. Yeah. Big thank
2: you
0: to Joshua Citarella for joining us today from New York. I'm Lil Internet, joined by Dan Keller and New Models co-founder Carly Busta. We polled our Twitter base, and you all said that merch is your favorite way to support us. So we'll have some new merch coming soon. Hope you enjoyed the first episode of our Athens Anti-Biennale content. Stay tuned for much, much more.